Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Robert McNeil. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Texas. Robert, thanks so much for joining us on our program today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I usually go by Bob unless I'm in trouble. Bob, all right. Let's do this. Oh, that's terrific. Well, good. You sent me your CV, but usually I like to have our guys just kind of give us a little history of their own sure, kind of dental and surgical training and where you're at from a practice standpoint. Well, let's see. I initially grew up in Canada, a couple hours north of Toronto, did my undergraduate degree up there at Master University and then ended up doing my dental training and med school and residency all in the United States. Went to University of Detroit Mercy for dental school off to Case Western for my OMS residency. So I was glad to hear Dr. Fassel Qureshi on the podcast, one of, uh, you know, just such a strong leader within our profession and educationally. So that was wonderful. And I ended up making my way down to Texas and being Canadian, I still play hockey down here and all that good stuff. But I've been, I'm in private practice. I'm on the dental board down here as an examiner. And I've been on the board for about five years. I'm in the examination community from the general dental side as well through REB and CDCA and ADEX. And within the past couple of years, I'm a uh, new board examiner with ABOMS as well. So certainly been a privilege and just a variety of different experiences. I've started teaching down at the dental school as well. So a variety of different things going on. Very cool. Sounds like, you know, several of our past guests on the podcast and it's so awesome that you're connected to some of these guys. Oh, I do. I do. It was awesome hearing Simon Young talking about research. You know, he made me want to want to just drop out of practice and (laughs) just do research. And Tom Schlieve from Parkland, one of the nicest humans I think I've ever met. And it's really nice. And it's actually really nice what you're doing because you're helping all of us hear more in depth from all these different people within our profession. And we've got such superstars out there. Yeah, we do. And for us to hear their stories, I love that you and Schlieve were talking about sort of how to communicate with patients and, you know, just communications where it's at. And and certainly from a dental board perspective, people always say, well, you know, can you give me some advice? What's kind of a typical problem that people, you know, get reported to the board? And usually it's a communication challenge. You know, we don't like to use the word problem. So everything's a challenge. It's a communication challenge and it's a money issue. And it's a money issue where it's a $150 money issue. Wow. I had a dentist call me the other day and said, I have a patient. I sent the patient to an endodontist. The endodontist took a CBCT, didn't find anything wrong. Patient's all mad because, you know, they had to pay $400 for a consult and a CT. What should I do? 
And I said, well, you know, it probably would have been great from a communication standpoint before you sent them and say, hey, you know, I'm not really sure. Let's have someone take a look at this. And then once they call back and say, I am so mad that they say, well, this is terrific news. That's great. They didn't find anything. You don't have to have a root canal. You, you save yourself, you know, two thousand dollars for root canal and crown. That's awesome. Yeah. But that didn't happen. So now you look at it and say, okay, is it worth paying four hundred dollars, even though you know you're right, but just to move it down the road, especially if it starts to escalate in that direction. So those are some of the things and we can get into more details, you know, down the road for what runs into trouble for an OMS with the board as well. Yeah, that was one of my first questions for you was I'm sure we've had some of our prior interviewee people on state boards, but no one's really mentioned it. And so maybe if you could just kind of talk <laughs> we about like to, we like to hide it. <laughs> right? No one, you know, it, it's really funny. I noticed you and I, I think you did a mission trip in Guatemala. Is that right? Yeah, I did a, a short one there and then kind of one in Bolivia for uh, my church. So I did one in Guatemala and it was mostly dental students. And okay. they said, this oral surgeon who's on the state board, they're making a big deal out of this. And was going to be running this oral surgery clinic. Well, no one wanted to work with me because they assumed <laughs> that I'm this mean old yes. guy. And they had a hard time the first day getting any students to come down to the oral surgery clinic. So oh it's a double-edged sword. Totally. You know, back in dental school, I had the opportunity to be president of ASDA and had the chance to basically be on the other side of the equation. And, you know, telling state board members and people that ran these licensing exams that at the time, you know, failure rates were 40%. And I still remember being at the American Dental Association building, telling about 600 board examiners that 60% failure rate on a exam was unacceptable. And I said it really slow and just <laughs> could have heard a pin drop. And so now I'm on the other side of the equation, but I think it's always good to look at the other side, you know, and I think for practicing OMS people, you know, no one wants to come see us. We're expensive. They know we're going to provoke some anxiety with them and always be mindful of that. And I always usually try to tell the staff that too and say, hey, this is uh, that we're seeing patients not at their best. And we have to be mindful of that. You know, part of my training, I did an integrative medicine fellowship through University of Arizona School of Medicine. And integrative medicine is kind of taking conventional medicine and complementary medicine. And for me, it was a matter of picking out some of the different things that may be useful for, quite frankly, for myself, my family, but also for patients. And one of the things we learned this about this song, and it's called Marconi Weightless, I think. And it's kind of a song that has apparently some data behind it supporting decreased blood pressure and pulse. And so we would play it to kind of chill patients out. And it usually worked like a charm. You know, you get these 85, 90-year-old ladies and they're hypertensive and, you know, you've got nitrous going and you're like, all right, play the song. And I actually love the song. It helps me get in the zone. It's kind of a little bit new age with different tones that they think, you know, kind of hit certain things, whatever. And this one patient freaked out. He was just in pre-op and he got mad as a hatter. And <laughs> the staff were like, hey, he hated your relaxation song. So he came in and I just said, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, we try to do this to actually relax people and obviously it didn't work for you. But then he ended up sending a really nice letter the next day and just kind of said, hey, I'm sorry, I was in a bad spot. <laughs> I know, I know you guys were trying to help me out. So that's hilarious. Oh my gosh. 
But yeah, I do like the point you bring up of getting involved with different groups of people and seeing the specialty from different points of view. And I think it's a little bit more than that. And because I think as a specialty, somewhat we put ourselves on an island. And our big battle is what's going to happen to our anesthesia model. And from an OMS perspective, you know, we're pretty keyed in with what uh, Amos is doing. And Amos is doing a great job at helping out with a variety of things. But we've had some pretty big news stories in, in Illinois and in North Carolina. And we're in a challenge. And if we don't have friends and colleagues throughout the dental profession, and if we're just kind of sticking together as OMS, and, and it's important for us to be together as OMS community, but we need to reach out. We need to have friends in the general dental community. And quite frankly, you know, we've had a lot of uh, nuanced challenges with dental anesthesiologists, but we need their help and support as well. So totally, it's never bad to communicate with other people and we can appreciate that, okay, we do certain things. And they do certain things. You know, I know I told you I practice in a multi-specialty practice where we've got ortho, endo, pedo, and perio. And the periodontist and I actually practice together in the same space. Mm. And, you know, a little bit of a different sort of setup. But, you know, it's made me a better surgeon. That's awesome. Learning certain things and, quite frankly, certain instrumentation. I go to take out a intraosseous lesion. And I realized that, you know, our standard instruments are not cutting it. So I'm like, okay, bring in the periodontist instruments. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And then I'm like, but, you know, don't tell her I'm using her instruments because she'll be all mad at me for making them dull. But it can be an advantage. And I usually tell oh. her, I'm like, look, between the two of us, you know, we're probably a pretty ideal surgeon if you combine a lot of our skills. I said, you place way too many sutures. I probably don't place enough sutures, you know, somewhere in between is good. So learning from people and realistically looking at it at the end of the day, if you can say, I want to do what's in the best interest of the patient. And it's easy to get off of that beat sometimes. And sometimes we see that at the state board level with just lots of over-treatment issues there. And you want to do your best, but at the same time, what we do is super difficult. You know, we have post-op complications and how do you effectively manage those? At the board level, I see a lot of post-op complications, non-OMS that are handled very poorly. Patient doesn't have an appropriate incision and drainage and they go to the hospital and, and you know, an OMS takes care of them there. But also as OMS, we have challenges. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's tough and it's stressful. And, sure. you know, from a stress management standpoint, it gets tricky because you can wear yourself down. And I would say one of the big challenges with my experiences on the state board, and I was an employee beforehand, I was on a blue ribbon panel for sedation safety. I've seen so many negative outcomes that, you know, and probably, you know, 12, 14,000 cases during my time of working with this stuff, you know, it almost makes me paranoid going to just get my teeth cleaned because yep. I've seen so many <laughs> challenges and you can have a range of safety where I kind of have to push myself sometimes because I become a little too safe and maybe I'm not using enough sedation medication. Maybe I'm not using enough local anesthetic versus on the far end of the equation. You know, a lot of the cases from an OMS perspective at the board level, or if you look at OMSNIC, is there are some cases with older patients and older patients they're going to take longer to metabolize the drugs. 
and you have to be more patient from a, we're lucky to have Omsnick as a critical part of our group. And I'd love you to have on the chairman of Omsnick is James Q. Swift. Yes. I don't know if you've heard of him, but yeah. he's a guy, when I was looking for a residency program, he's from the University of Minnesota. And I was so impressed with him and what he was doing. And it's kind of funny. He's been a mentor of mine from afar for about 20 years and just seeing what he's doing through Omsnick and they do some great things to help protect the specialty, but he'd be a great guy to come on and talk to. Cause you know, I think they have a general sense. They don't want to sedating older patients and it gets, it gets super difficult and people are getting older and you have, you know, yesterday I had to take a wisdom tooth out on a 71 year old gentleman and you know, it's tricky. It really is. For sure. And it's, you know, practice is harder now than it was 15 years ago with obesity and older patients and anxiety. You know, COVID's made anxiety worse. And I think that's where it gets into some of my integrative medicine training to do some other non-pharmacological things. You know, teenagers come in. We talk to them a lot about breathing exercises. You know, breathing exercises are low-hanging fruit. And I usually tell them, I say, you know, here's a sheet. I want you to give this a practice. Maybe it's before you take a test. If you're getting anxious about that, you come in and see me. I think that can be pretty helpful. And they come in the room and usually that's what I'll get them to do. I'll say, you know what? Did you practice that breathing exercise? Or you use magic words. And I know you and I kind of talked earlier about one of the things, one of my uh, things that I've done before that kind of helps with communication. But just with what you and Tom Schlevey were talking about with communication and the impact of it. Just being able to use some words that work for you. And usually when I come in and I see a patient kind of getting ready to freak out before an IV, I'll usually say something like, well, if you'd like to feel more comfortable, why don't you just go ahead and try to slow your exhale? You can breathe in however you want, but just as you breathe out, I want you to try to slow it down to a count of six or even seven. And I kind of say it exactly like that. I say it slow. I used to come into rooms in my first five years in practice and I'd be super peppy because I'd be excited and, you know, I've got patience and I'm like, okay, what are we doing for you today? And, you know, part of my training was through the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis as a branch off this integrative medicine thing. And as you and I talked about, you know, I don't want to be known as the oral surgeon that does hypnosis. I don't have a sign out there that says hypnosis. But hypnotic techniques absolutely blew my mind. When I was in integrative medicine, there's an instructor that's talking and they were talking about back in the 60s, they were using hypnosis for dental extractions on hemophiliacs hmm. before there were good clotting factors. And I, that just blew my mind. I'm like, no way. So I get on Google and I search. I'm like, oh my gosh, seriously. And I talked to the guy afterwards and I'm like, that just blew my mind. And he goes, here's the deal. I could say something to you right now that can make you blush, right? You say something embarrassing, yeah. you can make anyone blush. Yeah. It's vasodilation. So is it not plausible that you can cause vasoconstriction? And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, I guess that does make sense. And so, you know, I ended up, the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis run these four-day sessions and it's wild and it's physicians and dentists and psychologists. And one of my first instructors was an anesthesiologist, an MD anesthesiologist that did a lot of stuff with NIH. And he goes, would you like to learn glove anesthesia? I'm like, oh, that'd be awesome. 
And so train me. And, you know, I come back from my first session, my staff thinks I've lost my mind. <laughs> and we have a little kid, we're getting ready to start an IV and kids are the low hanging fruit of, you know, hypnotic techniques. Okay. And so I convinced this kid his arms in sand, some nice warm sand. And then I convinced him that it's nice and cold and numb and tingly. And maybe I'm taking a snowball and putting it over the IV site. So the kid's laying there. You know, arm is still, no one's holding the patient down. I stick in the, you know, the IV kid doesn't move. And my staff are like, oh my gosh. Wow. So it's allowed, it's allowed me, you know, as I said, I'm the laziest hypnotic person. And once again, if I see this, you know, if this is zoomed all around the internet of a uh, hypnotic oral surgeon, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to come and get you grant. <laughs> but it's the most effective communication. And I teach dental students about communication. We've just talked about how state board issues happen with communication. When I teach the dental students about communication, I'll be like, this is the most important lecture you're going to have in dental school. And then I kind of do funny haha. But I'm like, realistically, it's going to affect your income. It's going to affect whether you get a board complaint. It's the type of thing that you have to continue to work on and hypnotic technique is just the extreme version of that. You're implanting a suggestion. What I use it for, and once again, I've had drug addicts or people that really don't want to use sedation and they're kind of open to hypnotic technique. And then, then I'll do a more traditional thing. But I'm the laziest person in the world when it comes to it. We give chemical hypnotic drugs all the time. And so the low-hanging fruit for me and what blew my mind is post-hypnotic suggestion. If you don't tell someone what to experience... Let's just say, Grant, you walk in Monday morning, you don't say a single thing to the patient, you walk in, you shove a needle in, give local anesthetic, stand there silent, ink on a tooth, mm -hmm. get it out and leave. That's probably the worst you could do other than maybe yelling at the patient. That may be the worst, but that's no communication. You take it to the other extreme. And once you remove the tooth, the person's in a chemical hypnosis, you know, they're dazed from whatever drug we gave them. And I will say, I'll do a post-hypnotic suggestion. I'll say, and I usually do it while I'm suturing because I want to be efficient and quick. And I'm like, right now, your jaw is going to be numb and cold and tingly, and that's all normal. You tell them something that's true. That's what they feel. Your jaw is numb and cold and tingly. A little later on today, what you'll notice is a little bit of pressure in that area. And that pressure is normal. We don't want any of that to bother. I'll say that. Now, I'm not saying I don't have people that, come back and say, oh my gosh, that hurt like the dickens. But the number of people that I've had come back and I'll actually, I'm a little bit bad where I'll actually get the periodontist and bring her in to hear the patients <laughs> say it again. But they'll be like, I had absolutely no pain. They go, wow. I know I was supposed to take an ibuprofen. I didn't even take an ibuprofen. I had no pain and I can't understand it. Blew my mind. My staff are like, we don't have people calling about dry sockets anymore. <laughs> and it's really kind of funny, you know, because you got to get your staff on board. You know, you go away to a conference and you learn something and they just roll their eyes. But there's a lot of potential there. You know, and once again, it's setting expectations. It's implanting suggestions that can be helpful. And I'm sure I could utilize it a lot more than I do, but I don't. But I just pick out the things that I think kind of help. You know, this is something that intrigues me. I'm a third generation dentist and my grandfather, who was a general dentist, actually practiced hypnotic dentistry back in the 60s and 50s. And 
That's awesome. Yeah, it's something that I think we've definitely gotten away from. And I think with our high paced lifestyles and, you know, technology and everything and more patience and faster, it's just harder to communicate and slow down. Yeah. And the drugs got good. Yeah. You know, so here's the deal. If we lose the ability to give general anesthetics like propofol and ketamine, then you and I are going to start a OMS hypnotic training session because there's going to be a lot of people that go, (laughs) we've got to learn how to do this. And the thing I like about it, you know, it's easy to get in a trap of things. You know, how many years have you been out in practice, Grant? Almost 10. Almost 10. You know, I'm past 15 now and you look at it and I turned 50 last year and I'm like, you know, what's the next step? What's going to keep me interested? And part of that is, you know, doing something at the school on a part-time basis. Part of that was I ended up getting my healthcare management and leadership MBA graduated last December, you know, doing homework again and algebra. (laughs) Oh my gosh. was uh, blew my mind. But some of the things that I loved most in this course was neat. It was a physician only course through UT Southwestern Med School and UT Dallas and a neat program. But part of it, a lot of it was leadership and a lot of it was self-awareness. And they really strove home the point of all of this stuff you just have to keep working on. And I think the challenge sometimes, you know, for us as an OMS, you get into your own office, you kind of get walled off from outside people. And that's been one of the blessings with the dental board is that it's opened up other opportunities and even doing things like being a a reb examiner where I'm examining cavo surfaces on class two preparations. I meet other dentists and these other dentists are involved in a variety of other things. And I think that's important. And you just, you kind of have to keep changing a bit, you know? Yep. Yeah. Communication is so important, both between colleagues and interspecialty, and then also with our patients. Well, and I think most people could agree at times, OMS providers have not done a great job interacting with their colleagues. Yeah. (laughs) Is that a fair statement? (laughs) I I think so. I think... And I don't know why that is. So here's the deal. When I'm a rev examiner and they're like, no one wants to work with the oral surgeon. And they're like, oh my gosh, you seem, you know, they're like, no offense. That's how they started off. And then usually you're getting ready to take offense with the next thing they're going to (laughs) say. They're like, yeah, you don't seem like an oral surgeon. I'm like, oh, come again. And they're like, well, you know, and it's terrible to say, but they're like, well, you're nice. Yes, that just is cringy. That makes me cringe. It does. And obviously, it's kind of an offensive thing for me to say. So hopefully no one listens to this podcast. But (laughs) truth hurts, you know, and I've been a jerk at times. And, you know, when you first get on the dental board, you feel so great. And, you know, your ego gets stroked up and everything's awesome. And in a way, you know, professionally, I was on my game. And then I ended up having just, you know, marriage challenges and things like that. And that sort of helped recenter me pretty darn quickly. But you can kind of look at situations and say, how can I do a better job at this? And we're going to make mistakes. You know, the interesting thing, one of the things I learned in the MBA program was amygdala hijack. Have you ever heard of that term amygdala hijacking? No. It's basically when someone just loses their, you know what, loses their stuff and they just 
and it's a sympathetic discharge and they just start yelling and screaming. Nothing makes sense. They usually stop after about a couple minutes and they realize they shouldn't have said any of that. And it destroys relationships. It, you know, we've probably all seen patients do that. I think at times, you know, we may have done that with yeah. staff and whatnot. <laughs> and part of it is being self-aware of knowing this is happening. Then you look at it and say, well, how can I stop myself from doing that? And one of the things that helps from a cognitive perspective is to label something where if Grant, you say something to me, you say something bad about Canadian hockey players and I'm going to get really mad and then I'll stop and then I'll say, Grant, what you said has really made me angry. As a Canadian, hockey is really important. Yeah. But so I label it, it gives me a pause and I can kind of back down. And if you're going crazy, I can figure out either to calm you down by sometimes pulling away and just letting you vent a little bit, yeah. or I can kind of stir you up a little bit too. You know, being self-aware is kind of a unique sort of thing. But if anyone out there kind of loses their stuff, get online and there's this really cool whiteboard video about a amygdala hijacking. And it can really help just kind of being aware of what's going on. So, you know, your voice is so calm and soothing. I'm almost being hypnotized. Um, well, that was the plan. That's the plan. <laughs> I'm just afraid you're going to fall back into the bookshelf behind you. There. <laughs> but, you know, it gets to, and you got to find what works for you in your own voice. Yes. And, you know, as I said, I used to come in and I used to be peppy. And one of the best things from actually the hypnotic courses was it's all about sympathetic and parasympathetic functioning and that imbalance. And so obviously when people are sitting in our chair, sympathetic is way up. And if I come in all peppy and da, 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 then that's a challenge. And I'm raising their sympathetic discharge. I loved that you and Schlieve were talking about mirroring. And that is a hypnotic technique. And you can mirror someone with the words they're saying, their tone and their pace and their volume. And when you talk, it's not just your words. You know, it's your nonverbal, of course, is most of it. But it's your volume, your tone, your pace. If I want to try to relax you, put you to sleep, Grant, we're going to talk like this. But, you know, sometimes I may want to pep you up. So when I have a patient come in and the patient's being volatile, we'll say, and the staff come in, this person's really volatile, blah, blah, blah. Ugh. So I will meet them where they're at. And that's mirroring. And so I will go in and I'll talk with a loud voice like this. And I'll even have my posture kind of like how they're doing. And then very slowly, I'll start to lower the tone of my voice. I'll lean back in the chair. I'll relax my shoulders and I will take them to where I want them to go. And it's amazing when you do that. Yes. I had to do that when I was on the sedation safety panel. We had a state legislator that was very animated and was a, being a bit of a challenge with the dental board. And I used that technique with this legislator. And we came out of there and the executive director's like, I've never seen him so calm in my entire life. <laughs> and then I told her what I did. And he's, and he's back like this and he's leaning forward. And slowly, you don't want them to know you're copying them, but you do what they're doing. And there's mirror neurons in the brain that say, oh, you're like me. Well, yes. I like you. We'd like people who are like us. Totally. And so it was just a, it's neat to do that. It's neat to play around with all of that because it can have an effect. And there's times I communicate incredibly poorly and then I'll be like, oh my gosh, why on earth did I <laughs> just say that? Oh, it happens to the best of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's super fun.
But, you know, actually this last podcast, which at the moment hasn't been published, is coming up next week. It was with Dr. Chris Viazzi at the Mayo Clinic. And we were talking about anesthesia and the power of suggestion. Oh, and wow. Tying into this really well, you're kind of taking it further, which I really like. Well, and once again, I'm the laziest person in the world. I try to be super efficient. You know, most of us are incredibly busy with professional and personal things. And sometimes I get to an extreme with efficiency where I will, you know, I've set up a system. I know people talk about systems in your program where I minimize my movements. And it almost, you know, you can get neurotic with this stuff, but that's what I've done. And I want to, you know, any inefficiencies, I want to take them out. I want to reduce every single movement that is not necessary to make myself as efficient as possible. Now I do that. And for type A people like us where, okay, I want to do my MBA, you know, quite frankly, in a couple of years, I want to do a law degree. And I did the MBA first just because I thought it would be easier and would fit into the system a little better. But part of me is I can't stop doing certain things like that. And I don't know if it's healthy. So I kind of have to force myself to do things to relax. Okay. And what we do once again is super duper stressful. You know, for me being on the dental board, gosh, you know, if I have a negative outcome, then it's really kind of a big challenge as well. And so finding some things that are going to help you relax, you know, for me, meditation, I used to think meditation was just a joke and like, there's no way I can sit there and think nothing. And of course, I wasn't really right on what meditation was. And so for me, I need a guided thing like headspace. But during my day, I do a 20-minute kind of listen to something. And I'm just refreshed and I'm ready to go and finding something that works for you. And back to the state board thing, one of the most sad things that I see is when dentists get isolated, they don't deal with stress, and drugs become an issue. And, you know, when we have an issue with that, we get a full report and you hear this person's life story through psychologists and social workers and things just fall apart. And obviously in OMS, we are not immune to that. You know, the downside is we do things, probably some of the most stressful things we do, and we have access to drugs yeah. And it's super duper difficult. And once again, I think that's where your podcast and your ability to have some form of connection out there that yeah. people can listen to this. And we have a, a fairly large study club within our section and our building. And that was one of our intents was to, you know, develop a group of people and people get to know it's a safe space. And just, you know, sometimes people just need to hear that man, practice is really hard, man. I had this one patient and she did, da, 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 da. you know, it's just like, as you get older, if you don't talk to anyone else that has like a sore shoulder and a sore hip, and you think you're like the only one going through it and you start feeling real bad about it, you know, misery loves company. Totally. And so to know that that's out there, to know that it's a big deal and you got to reach out for help because it's, it's sad. It really is when people don't get help they need. Yeah, it's funny you say that because a couple months ago, I had an OMS reach out to me and say, you know, I've been listening to all these podcasts and it's strangely therapeutic for me to hear the stories that everyone else is going through the same stuff I am. And I was kind of caught off guard and I, it didn't occur to me that that would happen. It's very interesting. Yeah. Why did you set this podcast up? So a number of different reasons, but 
I think, you know, the biggest, biggest ones were one, I have a younger brother who's in his residency and like from day one, he would call me, you know, almost on the day, <laughs> on the daily. Hey, hey, Grant, what are you doing in this situation? What, what about this? And yeah. blah, blah, blah. And I mean, half like, of look, his, dude, just listen to the podcast now, man. <laughs> right. Half of his questions I could answer, but the other half, I was like, you know, what? I'll get back to you on that one. And it started to occur to me because then I would reach out to Sleevy and I would call so-and-so and, hey, yeah. what do you think about this? And I thought, you know, I'm talking to these people. Why not record the conversations and help all the residents and other people out there? So it's something that's being helpful. But back to your point, a little bit of communication and meditation. I was kind of almost forced to learn meditation from some chronic back pain issues I was having. And before that, I thought meditation was bogus, you know. Yeah. But... And really, I started using breathing techniques and it was pretty remarkable how much it could decrease my pain levels just breathing properly. Yeah. Breathing exercises is the low-hanging fruit. And there's a specific one that kind of through the integrative medicine training is something called 478. And I'll tell you, my dad passed away about six weeks ago and I was driving into the office and I was telling one of my lead assistants about it. And I had just kind of found out and I was kind of starting to have a bit of a panic attack or just hyperventilating. And she sent me the message of four, seven, eight. Okay. Just to tell me to breathe. <laughs> yeah. And it's the craziest thing. You know, I consider myself relatively smart and I didn't even think about doing that. And so I did it. It relaxed me. And it's nice to have a tool in the toolbox of just say, yeah. This is what I need to do. There's power in breathing exercises. You know, I want things to work. I want, you know, it sounds like you had a great experience with it. Once you start having issues like back pain, you know, all of us got issues with back pain. I had an issue in hockey where I went right into the boards with my right shoulder pretty hard and pretty fast. And it happened at midnight. I actually had a state board meeting on anesthesia the next morning in Austin at 8 a.m. And I had to fly in a, my arm in a sling and I had a bag of peas on my shoulder. You know, the funny thing is you couldn't fly with a frozen ice pack because it technically is water, but you could fly with frozen peas. Okay. And I ended up, the only thing that didn't hurt me was operating. Hurt like the Dickens to sleep. I'd have to put my arm around a pillow. I was terrified to go get an MRI because of insurability issues and blah, blah, blah. It didn't hurt to operate. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to see what happens here. And anyways, long the short, but a year later, I'm still having limitation of motion and it hurt maybe about a one or two, nothing bad. And one of my friends does acupuncture and she's a physician that practices in Dallas here. And she's like, do you want to try this? So I try acupuncture one time, my arm, I have full range of motion with my arm immediately. Wow. And I'm just like, I'm like, are you kidding me? I had one treatment, one and done, no other trouble with my shoulder. You know, I don't understand that. I know it was kind of low risk, potential high benefit. So I'm like, oh my gosh. And I think there's a placebo component to that where I was probably psychologically, my subconscious maybe was limiting my range of motion because it knew I was having a problem, whatever. I don't care. I can move my shoulder. I can sleep well. I didn't have any orthopedic intervention in my shoulder. I'm like, oh, this is pretty good. Okay, I'll give it a try. You know, one of my favorite, I listened to a guy, Peter Atia, is a physician that does a lot of stuff on longevity and 
all sorts of things. This guy's a pretty intense podcaster, but he talks something about how, you know, you want to know something, but don't hold on too tightly to what you know, because sometimes you're not going to look at things like, you know, acupuncture for you with breathing exercise or meditation to help you out with back pain. You know, you want to be kind of attuned to, you know, what's going to work. Just try things out, you know, but be a skeptic. Say, well, I need to see that this is going to work or I need to know this is a low risk intervention. So totally pretty neat stuff. Yeah. Oh, and real quick, when you were saying four, seven, eight, is that inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight or? You got it. You got it. And I actually... For myself, I actually don't like that. I just focus on the exhale. And what you don't want to do, you don't want to tell a patient, you don't want to say, okay, breathe in. Okay, now hold it, hold it, hold it, hold. Okay, now breathe out. You know, you don't want to force them to do something. There's a certain type of technique when someone is having a panic attack that's pretty intense. And maybe some other time we'll go through a little more of that because it's a pretty intense, the, the NIH MD anesthesiologist, the guy that taught me that technique, but you want to find something that works, something that's going to flow off the tongue. Once again, from my perspective, the low hanging fruit is if you'd like to be more comfortable, what we found is if you go ahead and slow your exhale, maybe to a count of six or seven, you're going to feel more comfortable. You don't say, slow down your breathing, slow down your breathing. You say, just why don't you go ahead and slow and slowly relax. And, you know, I'm putting you to sleep, obviously, and all your <laughs> listeners have I've already fallen on That's wonderful on whatever. Do not listen to Maybe you're going to have to put a descriptor. Do not listen to this while operating heavy equipment. Yes, or driving. We have a board member oral surgeon that will put you to sleep. (laughs) But yeah, and playing around with it. You know, you and I were talking about communication, how it's kind of fun to do. It's fun to be able to mirror someone. And sometimes you learn by the mistakes of things you do say. Yes. This stuff is all so fascinating to me. I love communication as, you know, we've all heard on a lot of these episodes Because it's something that really we're not formally taught, you know, we're we're taught how to take do an incision, how to section a tooth. We're not taught how to talk to a patient and how to deal with different types of patients and, you know, connect with them. It's just not taught. Right. You know, we got, there's so many things to go through. And as I said, that's why the dental students, I gave a talk with the Texas A&M OMS residents last week and I kind of said, hey. Your first five years, you're not going to hit your stride. It's going to take you about five years because you're just so caught up in just technique. And now you're in a different situation. And how am I going to do all these different things? And now, you know, when you and I walk into the office, so many things are just happening in the background. We don't have to put our cognitive in energy into it. And that's a blessing. But yeah, communication is probably one of the tougher things Mm -hmm. because there's not really good teachers out there. You kind of have to hear someone do something and say, well, I'd like to do that. And I've always had a telephone salesperson voice. And that makes it difficult because I call someone and they think I'm trying to sell them something. (laughs) No, I need to talk to so-and-so. So I've kind of managed my voice in different ways for different things. But you got to keep things interesting, I think. And, you know, for me, being involved at the school has been a blessing. I started this Harvard have this training to teach in medicine course that they've just started. And I'm in that class right now. It's about a six month course. 
and you're learning how to teach. And for me, especially being a latecomer to the educational academia environment, it's been helpful, but also just appreciating different techniques you can use and using that for your presentations. And it's different now. You know, it's a different environment now than it was 15 years ago. Now, you know, residents, they grew up with a computer in their pocket. You know, I didn't have that. And so now you have to move beyond just, you know, this, this, this. Okay, now let's analyze the information. Let's work with it and have a better understanding with it. It's helped me certainly as an examiner with A-bombs to do question writing and to, you know, there's a lot of things you can do out there to be different. One of the things I'm doing in the fall is I'm going to be a uh, executive fellow with the Harvard Kennedy School. And I've always been intrigued with policy, and this is sort of dealing a lot with public policy and how to be effective. When you show up, getting back to the state board stuff, when you show up and you're an OMS member on the state board, no one trusts you because they think you've got ulterior motives. I think they think you want to take away everyone's sedation permit (laughs) who's not an OMS, so they don't trust you. And they can look at you and say, oh, okay, this person seems super smart based on what they've done, but I'm not going to trust them. And so if you're not effective, then you're just standing there holding your own flag saying, listen to me, listen to me. Yeah. But I'm one out of 11. And if it comes to the issue of, you know, us being able to provide our anesthesia model like we do, we're going to have to be effective. Yeah. And we're going to have to have a good argument. We're going to have to play nicely in the sandbox. We're going to need goodwill of others to sort of help us out. So that's in part why I wanted to do this Harvard Kennedy School program, too, is just to kind of learn a different aspect of things that's a little bit out of the healthcare realm and see what happens. That's cool. From all the things of, you know, I'm hearing that you've done and are doing, definitely sounds like you're someone who just loves learning things and as a passion for kind of that mental progression? I do. And I'm not sure it's extremely healthy because <laughs> you've got to, you've got to put everything in balance, you know, with my kids, my oldest guy is 21 and he's David's at UC Santa Barbara and he's okay. been trying to figure out what he's going to do. And we actually had dinner with Dr. Sleavy and my partner, the periodontist, Dr. Dr. Ganner, couple weeks ago. And he's, my son's decided he wants to go the dental track and and OMS. And he's actually, he's trying to get a program through UT Houston to actually work with Dr. Simon Young in his lab. So it was, it was mind blowing that your guests, I'm like, I I looked at your podcast. I'm like, oh my gosh, but that's the way it works and having connections and interconnection. And I would say, you know, anyone out there that's listening to this, that really kind of needs a connection, you know, I'm glad that person reached out to you and just said, hey, this is kind of a unique thing that you're doing to make us feel heard and make us feel connected. It's just reach out to people, you know, reach out to people. I'm easy to find online, reach out to me and just say, hey, man, talk to me about such and such. Or, you know, I'm having an awful tough time right now. And what do you suggest that I do? You know, being on the state board, I get calls constantly. And I'm a little bit impatient at times. That's probably one of my worst qualities. And I will just say, you know, tell me what's going on. And I have all kinds of people tell me all kinds of things. And, you know, sometimes if it's kind of a close friend, I'll say, this is the most boring story you've ever told me. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, it's good. You want to have a boring story because I'm like, 
you know, this is not a big problem because I get extremes of you never know where calls are going to go. But it's nice to be able to help people out. And that's why we're here. We're here to help others, our patients within the profession, with other people. That's at the end of the day, I want to leave it a better place than I found it. You probably don't know the exact number, but if you had to guess what percent of board complaints that you see deal with the communication problem. So, you know, that is essentially a communication, not like a technical problem. It would be hard to quantify, but I would say over 50%. And some of that can be, you know, everyone has bad outcomes. So you have a bad outcome and you say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm sorry that we've had this outcome. I want to make things right. Maybe it's removing the implant and then placing another one down the road at no charge. That's effectively dealing with that. You know, almost everything comes down to communication. You can have really bad outcomes and communicate effectively and take care of the patient. You know, when things start running into challenges, you know, reaching out. Omsnick, I love Omsnick. I would like, once I roll off the dental board, I'd love to be more involved with our malpractice carrier because they do a lot of things really, really well. And they can be helpful. Call Omsnick and say, here's what's going on. They give you a signed release thing for the patient. You give the patient their money, they sign the release. Usually that makes everyone happy. But yeah, keep working on communication. It's awesome. Yeah, that's my experience as well, like what you're saying. And it's a good point you bring up because maybe even you do make a technical error or something goes wrong, there's a complication. Uh, probably in my experience, like over 90% of those things can be resolved with good communication. Oh, for sure. For sure. And we can't expect doing what we do. You know, of course, we're going to have challenges. We're going to have negative outcomes. We're going to have patients that develop osteomyelitis. And you're like, what on earth? You know, this is a 20 year old patient we took wisdom teeth out on. And I see board cases like that. And that's where, you know, from my perspective, you get them off to another OMS provider. That's where having connections in your community and just say, hey, do you mind just taking a look at this with a fresh set of eyes? Yep. You know, I send a patient down to Schlieve for second opinions. And and that's where ego gets involved in a negative way if you're not able to kind of do that and you, you dig yourself in a hole. So totally. Well, I think we've kind of touched on a lot of different things here. I'd love to do some more episodes with you because there's, you know, just so many things we could discuss. Are you okay if our listeners want to reach out to you to discuss, you know, I don't know, communication or hypnotic type things or breathing? Yeah. Yeah. Just put my email in the show notes there. Okay. And then you and I will have to work on our business venture. Yes. Hopefully we don't meet. Hopefully we're not going to lose the ability (laughs) to give ketamine and propofol. And one thing I would push... And when I talk to residents about this, you know, specifically with anesthetics, because that's where we're going to run into some challenges, is have a mind frame of what's the minimum amount that I need for things. And sometimes we're set to what's the maximum I can give. One of the things that we see a lot of trouble with, we actually see lots of trouble with local anesthetic, local anesthetic and epinephrine and seeing cases of death where a patient comes in and they're hypertensive. And they just get floated with one to 100,000 epinephrine, multiple carpules. And, you know, there's criteria out there, especially if someone has cardiovascular disease. There's, you know, if there is a malpractice issue or a state board issue, the reviewers will reference the 0.04 milligrams of epinephrine 
which, you know, is just two one to 100,000 carpules, or it's four of the one to 200,000. But people are just not being mindful, in my opinion. And when you look at it, when things go bad, you're like, well, they're hypertensive. And you gave a bunch of epinephrine on top of that. And as OMS, we're always kind of taught endogenous epinephrine is always higher than anything you can give. But we've got these criteria out there that now that say, well, don't add insult to injury and doing everything you and I are talking about, Grant, to relax the patient with how you talk. And that brings them down to a better spot. So it's kind of a multifactorial thing, but it's an adventure. We just want to be as safe as we can be. That's the goal. I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. (laughs) First question is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? Ooh, I've read a book on lifespan by Dr. David Sinclair. And since I turned 50, (laughs) I'm looking at longevity issues. And he's a scientist. It's mind-blowing. It's like drinking from the water fountain or the fire hydrant, I guess would be a way to say it. But love that book. I'll look it up. I'm an avid reader and love hearing about new books. Next question is, what has been the most helpful non-oral surgery thing you've done or currently do that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? You know, I'd probably say meditation. Okay. Because that, as we talked about, what you and I do is super duper stressful. I love that Dr. Fassel Qureshi, my former program director, talked about prayer, you know, contemplative prayer, meditation. Because if you're not kind of in a good centered spot, it makes it tough to do what we do because what we do is super duper tough. Yes. I love that too. And that's probably at the top of my list is meditation. And I love headspace. I have no financial connections. I wish I did. But headspace for me, I need guiding. (laughs) I probably don't now, but it's just, you know, it's efficient. It's wow. You pick 10 minutes, you pick 20 minutes. Yep. Just, oh my gosh, I wake up from that. And it, it takes a while. It's going to take, you know, you know what it's like. It's, it takes a little touch of time to get good at it. But once you do, it's awesome. Yeah. I'll throw in two. I've used that and the Calm app and that's a great one as well. I've tried it. It didn't peek out to me, but, you know, and I think from a longevity perspective, you know, there's some great evidence about meditation to help out from that too. Totally. Chronic stress is bad. Yeah, bad for our body, for our patients, for our families. Well, you know, you look at a patient and say, well, why is this 21-year-old teenager having so many challenges after her wisdom teeth? You know, her cortisol level is just crazy, crazy high. And, you know, you do your best to kind of help out with all of that. But yeah, it's tough. And it's sad and we have an opportunity. I had a patient. It was funny. She was a college student and she was having myofascial pain issues. And I'm seeing her about her wisdom teeth. And anyways, she ended up doing well, got wisdom teeth out. I saw her later for the myofascial pain thing. And she goes, you know, my mom and I were getting a kick out of the fact that it was an oral surgeon who told me that I needed to relax and manage my stress. And she goes, (laughs) it really helped out a bunch because I had migraines constantly and was having all this jaw pain. And I learned a couple things about, you know, meditating and breathing exercises. And I'm not freaking out before I take tests at school. And, you know, but we can provide some help for people. That's awesome. Next question. What forceps do you use to remove tooth number three? Number three. I hate tooth number three. I just use my fingers. <laughs> just use my fingers. I'm a hockey player. You're a strong man. Dude, as strong <laughs> as I <laughs> Usually whatever the assistant gives me, but man, I hate sectioning tooth number three with a passion. Throwing a root canal on top of that. (laughs) 
brittle as heck and it's chipping <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah. And if you have to section, one of the other cases right after the hypnotic seminar that I did, I had a patient that was a gagger. And he was about 75 and gag reflex. Obviously, there's certain nerve issues there, but there's also a huge psychological component. And when I touched this guy's front lip in the middle, he'd start to gag. And this was the Monday after doing a weekend seminar. And I'm like, okay, it starts now. I'm like, here's if you'd like to feel more comfortable. And they tell you to say that because who doesn't want to be more comfortable? Okay. Yeah. I want to be more comfortable. You're not telling them what to do. If you want to be more comfortable. And I said, I want you just to focus on your exhale. I want you to slow it down to a count of six. And anyway, so he focused on his breathing that distracted him, allowed us to, you know, I had a section, I think 18 and 19 with, you know, water on this gagger and he's pretty old. So couldn't sedate. And my staff, once again, oh were like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that worked. <laughs> but it's wow. distraction. So. Yeah. Sorry, I'm ruining your rapid fire. <laughs> We're <questions. getting> <laughs> no. That's what yeah. I do. That's what I do. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's how it Sorry, is. You throw, it, you throw in all these complicated factors and suddenly a simple tooth number three turns into root canal, you know, health problems. They're old. They have vertigo. They can't go back. Now you're cranking your back to try to see it. You know, yes. It's just yes. like water yes. and spit everywhere. Uh, it just can get derailed if you're... Um, my my staff are so good. I use whatever forcep they hand me. Cause you, <laughs> yes, that's a whole other topic. But I'm a big fan of training your staff to hand you the instruments and all this stuff. So they are, you know, a good assistant's one step ahead of you, and an excellent yes. assistant is multiple steps ahead of you. Exactly. And really, I take my cues from my staff, and it's like a dance when it works well. That's awesome. Next question. Do you have a favorite episode of Seinfeld or The Office? Oh, I love all of them so much that it would be super hard for me to pick, you know. Got it. There's one I'm thinking about, but I'm not going to say, but (laughs) (laughs) I loved Kramer, you know. Oh, he's classic. Yeah. You know, yeah, I love both of those. I love Ricky Gervais as well. He's a character. My Canadian sense of humor is always a little bit off. And that can be a challenge, except that people just say, well, he's Canadian. So, you know, that's what it is. But I'm very much a Monty Python kind of guy. And I think many things are absolutely hilarious and no one else does. So, (laughs) Oh, man, I hear you on that front. But yeah. (laughs) I love how those shows, you know, like the whole episodes can be centered on one tiny nuance of society or what we do or think. And it, they just make it so dang funny when you're... I mean, I love Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. Oh, Larry Davis here. Just a, Larry Davis just a piece of work, that guy. So, but, Last, but we need to have joy like that. Yes. You know, you need to have your time to chill and relax and laugh, you know. Totally. It's another good stress reliever for sure. Uh, Last question is, what is your favorite quote? Mm. I thought a bunch about that because I listened to a couple of podcasts and I knew you asked it. And I think the biggest thing, and I tell my boys this, is don't be afraid to fail. Mm. And I have failed an awful lot in life. And I've learned an awful lot from failure. And if you're not failing, you're probably not trying hard enough. Yeah. Yep. I love that. And I think having the mentality of looking at failures as a learning opportunity, not, you know, a dagger in your side or something can, is just so helpful. Right. 
Right. And, you know, pain is teaching you a lot of things really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. No <laughs> I, heard I heard that quote a long time ago. And it's like, yeah. So you have to look at it and say, okay, a bad situation happened. Yep. What can I take as a blessing out of this? What can I learn from this? Even the passing of my father six weeks ago. You know, there were a lot of blessings that came out of that, the way my brother and I were able to interact and connect on a better level that, frankly, I wish we had done that before my dad's passing. But it took, you know, that opportunity of being together for four days held up in a spot in Canada during COVID to interact that way. So you can always find a positive when you have a mistake in the office, when you have a challenge sit down, you go through it. You know, Omsnick, I think is who I ended up getting a sheet from that kind of helps you go through the process to say, okay, well, did our systems work? Do we need to change the systems, you know, and not point fingers, but just let's learn from this and let's be a safer practice, have a culture of safety. Yeah. Gosh, I'm so sorry. You had went through that recently. That's a tough experience. And he was 91. He was a hockey player. He had his hockey team line mates show up and I got a picture of all of them together. And it was my hockey team sent flowers to the the funeral and you can celebrate a life and it can be a blessing, which is what it was. Very, very cool. Well, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time to kind of talk to us about some of your experiences. I'd love to reconnect with you and kind of be focused on some of these topics a little bit more. I love what you're doing. You're spending a lot of time doing this and it's a service to our community. And I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Cool. Well, have a good rest of your Saturday and let's keep in touch. All right. You too, my friend. Take care. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.